Welcome to Ways to Means, a personal finance podcast with Hannah and Susanna. We believe financial empowerment is a collective effort, and we learn best by sharing personal experiences with each other. Join us as we talk about all things money. My concept of renting is like, I've always heard people call it like throwing your money away or flushing it down the toilet. And I don't think that's fair. One one quote I came across was someone saying, a renter can find her dream home and buy it tomorrow. An unhappy owner has to figure out how to stay in her house to recoup her costs. We don't want our, ourselves or our listeners to fall for simplistic thinking. Um, and if the answer is, it depends, then let's discuss what on. But if this is something that is a foreign concept to you and you don't have it as a norm in your culture, in your community, in your family, it can be a huge barrier. And that is that's extremely problematic for breaking cycles of generational poverty and wealth. Welcome back to Ways to Means. This week, we wanted to pick up on the conversation we started last week, speaking with Lou about her first time home purchase. Um, that episode was, you know, a conversation with a friend who reached a personal financial milestone. Um, but Hannah and I want to every so often zoom back and take a bit of a bigger picture look. Um, and, you know, our stock market primer episode is one example of that. So this week, uh, I'm going to uh, I did some research, compiled some information about sort of the average uh, home owner or home buyer and um, averages in, you know, the rental market, all with the purpose of trying to compare home buying to renting to try to see if we can answer the question of which is more financially savvy. That sounds great, Susie. I'm really excited about this episode. And yeah, let's dig in. Awesome. So one of the reasons why we want to cover this is because there is a general conception, I find, that homeownership is better than renting. Um, people will often talk about how renting a home is, quote, throwing away your money um, because you're not building equity. Hannah, would you find that uh, you feel the same way, that there's this general like social or cultural understanding that homeownership is considered better or smarter? Yeah, I think there's definitely um, a very class aligned and oriented concept that owning a home is better. Um, I can only speak from my own experience, which is that my concept of renting is like, I've always heard people call it like throwing your money away or flushing it down the toilet. Um, And I think that that's not something that was really part of my consciousness in my twenties and when I was younger, but as I get older, like that's how I hear people talk about it. And I don't think that's fair. I really don't think that's an accurate representation of the, it's, it's too much of a dichotomy because homeownership isn't necessarily accessible or the best option for everybody. So that's literally why we're here. That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. There's a lot of factors to consider um, between renting and um, owning uh, aside from whether you can even afford to um, buy a home, which, you know, buying a home has a, a larger barrier to entry usually than renting because you have to have a down payment, unless it's 2006 during the subprime mortgage lending stuff. But we don't really get into that in this episode. So um, one thing to note um, that I think a lot of our listeners probably know, maybe not the statistics, but the general trend, the rate of home ownership is dropping uh, 
so homeownership has declined from 69, around 69% in 2004 to 64% <laughs> in 2019. Uh, and the decline for people under 35 is steeper, dropping, dropping 7.2 percentage points from a, from a peak of 43.6% in 04 to 36.4% in 2019. That um, statistic is a couple of years old. You see these memes about um, how millennials aren't buying houses because they're buying avocado toast instead. And this is something that we've talked about in a previous episode. Susanna, you made the point that you can't um, you can't budget your way out of a low income situation. Um, it helps and you can optimize, but you can't just drop your avocado toast to magically own a house. It's it's really the, one of the main reasons that younger people aren't buying houses is because wage wages are not keeping up with the cost of housing inflation. Um, and so I just think it's really interesting that now we're finally seeing some longevity to this trend that there's been a steep decline for people under 35 owning yeah. a home. That statistic I took from this article called Millennials Should Accept Their Housing Fate by Gary Schilling um, from Bloomberg. It was a 2019 article, Uh, but he does discuss some of the reasons why millennials in particular um, are uh, buying homes at a lower rate than Gen X and uh, boomers, et cetera. And one of the big reasons is because we entered the workforce during the recession. And there's some interesting statistic about how every time the unemployment, or I guess maybe on average, when the unemployment rate jumps over 5%, there's like a cumulative loss of earnings for people entering the workforce at that time over the next 10 years. So it's like puts puts people entering the workforce during an a recession at a disadvantage for like a decade to come. Anyway, uh, I'm going to cite my sources. So if you're interested in, in, in reading about that, um, you can find that in the show notes. So, so basically we're screwed. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's tough out here. But yeah, so uh, we wanted to get some more details so we can actually try to make an informed decision about whether whether homeownership is better than renting or vice versa or under what conditions one is better than the other. Um, yeah, we don't want our, ourselves or our listeners to fall for simplistic thinking. Um, and if the answer depend is is it depends, then let's discuss what on. Okay, so one of the sources for this episode, the number one source is this really amazing article I found at betterment.com. Again, we'll be in the show notes. It's called, uh, it's titled, Is Buying a Home a Good Investment? And it's really useful because it's it walks through all the uh, costs um, of buying a home, comparing it to renting, talking about the right of return, et cetera. So I'm going to walk through some of those statistics because one of the things that's so great about that article is that it it's using like a case study. It, it, it's taking you through a case study of like the average home um, buyer. So first of all, this is also a 2019 article. So the numbers are out of date. I didn't want to perform uh, in adjustments for inflation because I'm not really sure if all of these different um, the costs and benefits are, you know, moved at the same rate. So let's just say these are 2019 numbers for what it's worth. Inflation has been about 9% between then and now. So, you know, think of that what you will. So in 2019, the average American home buyer uh, was married with a household income of just over a hundred thousand. That's the national median, um, a current rent of like 1150 a month. Again, the median 
renter's insurance of 16 bucks a month, looking to buy a detached single family home with three bedrooms. This is all just like sort of middle average home buyer. So um, this article takes you through the costs associated with renting versus buying. So with renting, there's no upfront cost, no back-end cost. There's just an annual cost or like monthly cost that you can roll up to an annual cost. So the median monthly rent in 2019 was $11.50. Um, but keep in mind, rent is subject to inflation. So that you know goes up. If you're looking over a longer term time horizon, that's going to increase every year. Uh, and then renter's insurance is usually like 16 bucks a month or 187 per year, again, subject to inflation. Um, the benefit, the like financial benefits uh, to renting are not, I sort of, I, at first I said none, because there are some benefits to, to buying a home or owning a home that we'll talk about. And, you know, there aren't like tax deductions, you, like you can't deduct the, your rent. So that's not a benefit. But you could say that saving the upfront closing costs associated with home buying is the like count, like compared or contrasted benefit of renting compared to home ownership. Well, there's also, there's um, the nuanced benefits that aren't financial, which is having flexibility. If you have a job that requires you to travel or relocate frequently, it doesn't make sense for you to buy a home if you're not going to be in it for people say usually five years. So there are benefits with the flexibility. There can be benefits for not having to have a lot of cash up front, like to close and having a down payment, but that's a double-edged sword because a lot of times renters are subject to a security deposit first month's rent, last month's rent and a security deposit, which, you know, is illegal in some States because it can be so predatory. Um, and so like, I think about when we lived in Key West and you would have to have, you know, nine to $12,000 cash to move into a rental. And you were lucky to find one if you could. Meanwhile, that feels like a lot of money, but if you were going to be putting that towards a down payment, you'd need, you know, double or triple that. So it, it, it can work both ways, right? There's some hidden costs there of um, being somewhat financially susceptible um, and having to jump through those hoops as a renter. Um, those are really good points. I didn't really, think, really, I didn't really think about the broker fee. I also think these stats are just interesting, like regardless of whether, you know, let's say we have an audience member who is trying to decide whether or not to buy a home. And, you know, all that really matters is their own numbers as it relates to all of these things. But it's interesting to know what the average home buyer is, who the average home buyer is. I thought that was really fascinating what you just described and the fact that most people want a single family detached home. I'm also really curious if things like that are going to change. Um, you said that the median income is or about $106,000 a year. How is that going to change as people are waiting to get married and they're waiting till later in their life to combine households, which is a trend we're seeing. We're going to see more solo purchasers. I think that'll be interesting. 88% mm -hmm. of home buyers finance their houses, you know, get a mortgage, um, which I guess I'm assuming means that 12% buy with cash in full. Most mortgages are 30-year fixed rate. And again, as of 2019, September 2019, the national average interest rate was 3.56%. Keep in mind that the, the Fed is, is going definitely going to, at some point very soon, raise interest rates to help combat inflation. So that's going to have a big impact on the rate of return of a home buy. Um, so, okay, so with, with buying a house, 
there are so many different costs um, that make it so much more complicated than renting. And I think that really overwhelms a lot of people because they're like, well, I don't understand it all. I can't know for sure if it's gonna actually be better. Um, so the upfront costs are, you know, your down payment um, and closing costs essentially. So $250,000 is the median home value in 2019. Median down payment is 13%, which would be like 32,500. Um, and the monthly mortgage, the median monthly mortgage is 984 or like just under $12,000 per year. What do you think about that, Hannah? I think it sounds pretty cheap. Um, I'm, thinking about, <laughs> I'm just thinking about how much real estate is inflated over the last like two years, especially mm -hmm. because of the pandemic and how there's been so many geographic shifts and people have been moving, leaving big cities and a lot of costs have increased um, of real estate in more uh, like small city, large town, desirable places. Um, and so you're seeing the house costs and prices just inflate out of control over the last couple of years. And I'm just thinking like, what cities can you buy a $250,000 mm -hmm. house in anymore? And mm -hmm. it's changing really rapidly. Right. And like I said earlier, it's not necessarily keeping up with wages. Um, so closing costs are typically between two to 5% of the home cost. Um, so in this case of like the median home buy, that would be like 5k to 12.5k. Um, so what's kind of interesting about this is that because of these closing costs, it, the second after you buy a home, you have less money or like less net worth, so to speak, than you did right before you bought the home to the exact tune of your closing costs. So the idea being that like your net worth takes into account the equity of your house, but you, but those closing costs, you don't get back. So that's where you get the stat where um, it takes around four to five years to break even on the cost of buying a house. Um, that's pretty much because of that. And we'll talk about the rate of return and how, how you get to breaking even and beyond. Um, but yeah. So basically all those closing costs include things like what's called origination costs, which is basically just like what you're paying the bank, the person at the bank who's actually like doing the underwriting of the loan. Um, you know, other stuff, appraisal fee, credit report, flood certification, like uh, tax service, uh, commissions, inspections, etc. All right. And then there's ongoing annual costs, which you would compare to the rental and ongoing annual costs like rent and renter's insurance. So for home ownership, the annual costs include private mortgage insurance, which Hannah brought up last week. If you can't afford a 20% down payment, um, you pay private mortgage insurance. Um, the national average for that is like a, a 1200 per year, but you do stop paying that once your equity reaches 20% of the house's value. Which is just so painful. And I think I said this in the last episode. It just adds insult to injury. It's like, yeah. oh, hey, you don't have the money to pay us. We're going to charge you more. But I think that that's exactly the model that any lending institution follows. Like payday lending is really predatory. You see some similar principles in a concept like this where it's like, oh, another great example. You can't afford rent in this town. Well, you definitely can't afford to have a mortgage that's less than your rent because you don't have all this upfront money. So. Um. So then there's property taxes. The median property tax is 2,700 per year, which is about 1.08% and subject to inflation too. Um, oh, I didn't mention that, you know, 
with a fixed rate mortgage, your mortgage uh, costs are not subject to inflation. So that's another major benefit to homeownership because rent is subject to inflation. So, and then homeowners insurance, national average is a little over a thousand, also subject to inflation, then maintenance costs. Okay. So I, I do think that a lot of people who are buying a home don't take this into account the way they do, do take into account things like homeowners insurance. The uh, rule of thumb apparently is to expect to spend 1% of the sale price on maintenance each year, which in the case of this like average um, case study is 2,500 a year. Do you have any thoughts about that, Hannah? Um, yeah, I don't have a good number. Um, I think that it's, I, I don't have a good rule of thumb like that, but I think that when I hear that number, I think $2,500, like that feels like a lot for, you know, landscaping and minor improvements and fixing leaky pipe. But really what that number is, is, oh, the heat pump went out. It's going to cost 6K. You know, or like, oh, we found some bad wiring that needs to get replaced and that's going to cost $2,000. It's those kinds of things that add up and it turns into $2,500, but it's slow leaks. And then it's, you know, like I said, your heating unit blowing, which is just so painful or a new roof. Like we talked to Lou last week and Mm -hmm. she was going to spend, I don't know, several thousand dollars getting a new roof. Like that's where that comes in. So covering the last bit of cost to home ownership, um, you could on the back end uh, that you could be, you could experience real estate depreciation, but we're going to get to appreciation in a minute. But I felt like I had to, to mention that that could ultimately be a cost to homeownership. So the benefits of homeownership, I definitely learned something new here because I've known for a while or had it in my head that a major benefit of homeownership was being able to um, deduct your mortgage interest and your house taxes on your on your tax return <clears throat> but this is of course only if you itemize deductions instead of taking the standard deduction and the tax foundation which is a bipartisan tax policy think tank predicts that only about 10 percent of taxpayers even itemize at all um that makes me feel so much better because every year I feel like I'm lazy for not itemizing, but my itemizations, they're a fraction of the standard deduction. Yep. So. Yep. You're not lazy for not itemizing. Um, and uh, my dad told me, cause I, I read that and I was like, oh my God. And I told my dad that because he's, he's often cited this benefit. He said, yeah, I, I forgot to confirm this prior to recording, but he said that the standard deduction apparently doubled in 2018 making it so that like far fewer people itemized than they did before 2018. So that was a big uh, benefit that might not actually be a relevant benefit. Um, Also big benefit is I mentioned this already, but your monthly mortgage payment is fixed, not subject to inflation. Okay. Um, But here's where it gets interesting though. I just learned this and I feel like I should have learned this a long time ago. So um, on the one house I have with a traditional mortgage, Uh, We got a notice the other day saying that our payment was going up for the year because I know. And I was like, what? I thought this was a fixed cost. What the heck? So we have non-traditional financing on our first house and non-traditional financing on the house that we just bought. So the house that I'm talking about has like a mortgage through a lender. Everything is very standard and um, the taxes are going up. 
and it's just taxes for the city are going up. And so, and I think the cost of our insurance might've changed slightly for the coming year. And so our monthly overhead went up by like about $125 a month, but I was totally floored, but it's because I had forgotten that all of your monthly payments include when you go through a traditional lender, they include taxes, taxes. and okay. insurance. Whereas when you go through a non-traditional lender, that's not usually the case. Yeah. Yeah. So you do have to separate that out in your mind or in your finances. And I noticed that on uh, Lou's closing statement or whatever it was called, that um, her insurance and taxes were lumped in with her mortgage payment too. And I didn't even know that was a thing. So on the back end, other benefits to homeownership, back end meaning when you sell, you can... Um, I'm a little unclear on the details of this, but I think you can get you. I think you can deduct the capital gain you earned upon the sale of your home from federal taxes, um, which is a benefit, but it's like, it, it's comparable to the benefits of like a tax advantaged stock market account, like a Roth IRA. So, right. So when you sell your house, if you've lived in it for two out of the past five years, then you have the tax advantage of it being your primary residence. Um, and so you don't have to pay capital gains on the first $500,000 of the sale of the house. If you're a married couple or two fifty each, if there's two people. So there is a huge advantage in that. Um, the tax code is written very much to favor home ownership. And that's mm -hmm. just one of the benefits. There's also a 1031, which is an exchange. And it's basically when you, um, buy and sell properties of similar value within a certain amount of time, there's, there are tax advantages that you can, you can empl employ there so that you're not paying out the wazoo for selling a house and buying one of similar value. Hmm. Interesting. All right. And then benefits to the back end uh, or benefits on the back end upon the sale of your house is real estate appreciation, which is what you're banking on. No one can predict how much it's really going to appreciate and it could actually depreciate, but you're betting on it appreciating. Which is so funny to think about because we are talking about um, our generation. So we're both 33 talking about our generation entering the workforce during the 2008 housing crisis. Like I remember being in college when that happened. And I think I entered the workforce the next year. And um, I think that that trauma is, is residual because when I think about purchasing a home now, they always say, oh, real estate, it's always an investment. It always goes up. You know, it's like, oh, it's the stock market. It always, but it's like, that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. And we lived through that. And I think that there's a very specific subset of people who maybe saw their parents go through that experience and they have this traumatic experience in the back of their mind. And they think, well, you know, maybe real estate isn't a sure thing where somebody maybe 10 years older or younger than us would feel very differently about that. Yep. So what's really interesting is that if you compare the annual recurring costs of homeownership versus renting, it's over five in this average, you know, American case study, it's over $5,000 more annually to own versus rent. That sounds damning, but keep in mind that mortgage is fixed, whereas rent is rising with inflation. So on average by year 23, annual costs of home ownership are cheaper than renting. And, you know, 23 years sounds insane also, but this is just in terms of the annual recurring costs. Again, the reason why buying a home is considered a good investment um, is, is not primarily because of annual recurring costs. It's, a, it's about the like 
ultimate investment upon sale of the house, right? So, but but just, I think that was really interesting to for me to learn that the annual recurring costs are so much higher with homeownership. I was it's like, also really yeah. interesting because when we ran the numbers for the calculations that you did for the last episode with Lou was so fascinating to see the nitty gritty of her monthly overhead being lower because of her mortgage payment being lower than her rent was previously, but then also lower once you factored in the tax advantages. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. Lou's situation was very specific um, to her and I think that's part of anybody's analysis or should be, what's my monthly overhead? How is it going to change when I buy? How is that going to change over time? And you can only predict that with so much accuracy, but it's still um, interesting when you see somebody who, like you were saying the other day, Susanna, like some cities are not advantageous to buy in. Um, and so it really is a case by case basis. And it depends on where you live, what your finances are. Yeah, I guess I should have said at the beginning, I was going to sort of hold off to the end, but it needs to be said um, sooner rather than later, I suppose. Um, this caveat, which is that we're using these national averages, but there is no national housing market, truly. It's all a local thing. So I'm using stats that are like the national median or national average, which is helpful, you know, to the extent that it's helpful. But you know, Lou bought a house in Louisville. Um, so yeah, the whole 20 years uh, to get to the, to a point where owning your home is cheaper than renting your home, that's super variable depending on whether where in the country you're buying or renting. So in any case, um, if annual costs were the only considerations in deciding whether to rent or buy, hearing that 23 years number would make me lean towards renting for sure. But like I said, the main argument for why real estate is an investment is the expected appreciation and value that you get to recoup upon the sale. So on average, historical price appreciation for the U.S. housing market has been somewhere between 2.2 to 3.7% per year. You know, we need to say that past performance does not guarantee future results, but this is, the, this is true of the stock market as well, as well, which is kind of like the comparison to, like if you're not going to invest your if you have money to invest and you're not going to invest it in real estate you're probably going to invest it in the stock market so you know past performance does not guarantee future results in either arena um so okay one thing i read that was really interesting was um this guy uh this article i read i'll put in the show notes he says uh it, most of the rise in single family house prices over time is due to larger new structures with more marble bathrooms, fancier kitchens, etc. There's apparently a quality adjusted house price index developed by Yale professor Robert Schiller, which removes this upward price bias by comparing the prices of the same house when it's sold repeatedly over time. And doing that, it shows that the, that the, um, the average quality adjusted single family house price corrected for overall inflation have risen only 1.1%, which doesn't even adjust for interim owners doing upgrades. Given a mortgage rate of like around 3.56%, which is the national average, this kind of indicates a net loss. So that's something to keep in mind. I don't know. Sounded interesting. So, so pure appreciation is a good measure to reflect upon, but a true rate of return needs to account for appreciation and the ongoing annual costs we discussed earlier and some other things that I personally don't quite understand well enough to like, you know, 
articulate on this podcast, um, such as how, you know, the leverage you get by financing your home with a mortgage actually amplifies your returns, both wins and losses. Basically, the internal rate of return is very negative at year one, which basically means that you'd take a big loss if you sold the house in under a year. The major main reason you would take a big loss is because of those upfront closing costs. Like if you spend, what was it, between 5,000 and 12.5,000 on closing costs and then sell your house immediately, you never had any time to recoup that cost. So, which is why, which is why you don't buy a house if you're only going to be somewhere for a right. year or if you're going to move, you would want to hang on to it and then try to sell it like in the next, you know, five years so that you have that tax advantage. But I think that the pandemic has completely changed that dynamic because people saw appreciation within one year because their housing market got really hot. Interest rates were really low. The market was super competitive. There's a huge cramp on the supply chain right now. There's a huge drop in available housing. So there's just a a, a mega bottleneck right now, um, which is driving prices up. And so I could see somebody buying a house in 2019 and selling it in 2021 for a considerable increase beyond the closing costs. Yeah. But these are unprecedented times. These are. Um, I, and there's any number of like strange things. Like, like Lou had an example where she felt like her, the house she bought was artificially um, depressed the, the, the cost. So like she could potentially turn it around without doing any work on it. And like the, she could maybe sell it for $35,000 more. So like, there's some crazy funny money going on here, but, um, but in any case, like the average stats back to average, our average case study. So it's, uh, the internal rate of return is very negative at year one, but raises sharply in the first few years to where you'd break even, um, by around year four or year five. And then it levels out, it, it sort of peaks at around year 10 and actually drops slightly in subsequent years. I think that has to do with the fact that like, with the, with the whole like financial leverage you get from a mortgage and the more equity you have, the less leverage. I do not understand that. But all we really need to know for now is that, you know, given all this and given our, this example, this case study of built around averages of key stats, you can expect an internal rate of return between 8.5% and 10% per year from home ownership. So boom, that's what we got, at least from the like stats from 2019. Um, what's really interesting about that is that those re- that that rate of return is very comparable to expected returns associated with the stock market. So my hot take from all of this really is simply that people who rent, especially millennials who rent like myself, that have so many people talking at them about how they're throwing their money away and like, you shouldn't wait so long to buy a house and all that stuff. My hot take is that you can take a deep breath. You're not like just flushing money away every month. You don't need to panic. Um, I, I totally agree because there's an emotional and mental cost to buying a house and owning a home as well. And not just like a single family. I'm talking about any sort of, any sort of ownership. Um, Maybe you want the flexibility. Maybe you don't want to have to commit. Maybe you want to be able to move for work. Maybe you just don't want to deal. And that has a lot of um, value. And if what you're saying is that you can expect an eight eight and a half to 10% return per year from home ownership or the stock market all day long, the stock market is easier. If you're putting your money in index funds, you're walking away and you're not touching it. You're not trying to day trade. You're not trying to optimize yourself out the wazoo. Um, yeah, it's going to be less work, but also moving and housing insecurity is a lot of work. It's a lot of emotional strain. And so I see the value of having longevity, stability, 
at home, knowing where you're going to live, being able to plant that garden, being able to paint the wall, a color that makes you happy. All of that has value as well, for sure. Yeah. My second hot take is that, you know, if the rate of return with home ownership is comparable to the rate of return on the stock market, then what it really kind of boils down to is your values and preferences like you just ran through. Though to be fair, it's not an exact apples to apples comparison because if you have money to invest in either buying a house or the stock market and you choose the latter, you still need to pay rent, which you don't have to do if you're living in a house you own. Okay, so also one measure of whether it makes more sense to rent or buy is the price to rent ratio in your area. Some cities it's smart to to buy over renting. Some cities, it's smarter to rent over buy. You calculate the price to rent ratio by dividing the median home price in your area by the median annual rent. Um, you, you can find like a list of different price to rent ratios uh, by major cities. So um, the rule of thumb, I think, is that a ratio of 15 or under favors buying, 16 and over favors renting. So in New York, the ratio is 38.6 or was in, no, no, I think currently is. Um, and in Milwaukee, it's 12.8. So that's a big difference. That's uh, dramatic. Yeah. And that that has a huge that variability has a huge impact on the expected internal rate of return because it affects the annual ongoing costs. You know, there are other things that affect that push you in one direction or the other is like if you have an opportunity to buy in a neighborhood that you feel confident is up and coming being the uh, a resident of the city for a number of years, um but you could also, on the other hand, succumb to an unusual circumstance, like a major employer relocated and tanked home prices. And like, you can't predict that. Um, and, you know, you could be subject to a, an anomaly like the subprime mortgage housing bubble of 08, which, you know, could be considered an anomaly or an inevitability, but either case, it's still poor timing. One, one quote I came across was someone saying, a renter can find her dream home and buy it tomorrow. An unhappy owner has to figure out how to stay in her house to recoup her costs. And yeah, that I definitely feel that. I feel like the risk to homeownership is scary. It's like easy to back out of a, of an unhappy situation as a renter than it is to back out of an unhappy situation as an owner. And that, you know, should factor into your decision as well. We sort of talked about this, or Hannah mentioned this earlier, but I do think that when it comes to the like general, like common wisdom, it feels like that owning is better than renting. I kind of feel like one of the reasons why that's that's pushed is is the confirmation bias inherent to the fact that homeowners are on average wealthier than renters to begin with, which is not because of them buying a house and that house appreciating, but because of the barrier to entry in buying a house in the first place. Homeowners can afford to, you know, put down a down payment. Well, so one of the primary means by which general generational wealth is transferred from generation to generation is through home ownership. And so this is um, an amazing uh, kind of blind spot in, um, in, in this conversation about buying versus owning, which is if you inherit a home, you inherit net worth, um, and value, um, that you, that somebody from a previous generation, presumably in the situation where you're, let's say inheriting a home from your parents, they paid off the mortgage over 30 years. They own their home outright. They deed it to you upon their death or they, um, and so that transfer of generational wealth is very, very meaningful. And so when, um, people don't have 
historical access to home buying, it puts a huge cramp on access to generational wealth and, and building that. And specifically what I'm talking about is the net worth of black people in the U S being so much lower than that of white people, very much because of the barriers to home ownership that were written into, um, to policies around lending, um, into daily practices around lending, um, and into urban planning, um, uh, permitting and redlining and the way that the system is structured to perpetuate institutional racism. And so those barriers to home ownership over the last several generations, just those last 50, 60 years that you can look at as a snapshot have a huge compounding effect. And so going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the, um, the conversation about what do you think about the value of owning versus renting? I come from a family that has had access to wealth and that has owned their home. And so this is like a norm that they own their homes. The the norm is that I would one day own a home. And that was very much the concept that I was raised with. I didn't inherit a home, but it it's the same concept of feeling supported culturally to buy a home. So this is one of the things that Lou talked about when she bought a house that she was signing the paperwork And one of the things that really upset her was that she had to sign this waiver saying that she had access to resources to help her learn about the home buying process. And she had only heard about those resources in the process of signing the paperwork saying that she had access to the resources. And she was like, this is knowledge that should be widely available. But if this is something that is a foreign concept to you and you don't have it as a norm in your culture, in your community, in your family, it can be a huge barrier. And that is, that's extremely problematic for breaking cycles of generational poverty and wealth um, and creating greater inequity. And a lot of times the simple act of owning a home and building that equity in that home is, is what starts that divide and what starts that split. Yeah. Speaking of inequity, I want to, you know, bring this to someplace current and talk about um, Build Back Better, which is um, Biden's legislation that is uh, sort of stalled right now. Build Back Better is this massive stimulus um, that would put a ton of money into a bunch of different social safety net programming. Um, So I just wanted to touch upon, you know, what his agenda is as far as housing. So Build Back Better would allocate about $170 billion to affordable housing. And in addition to to going towards building new and affordable housing, it includes about $24 billion for housing choice vouchers, which would help an estimated 300,000 low-income households. So the, the voucher program, also known as Section 8, it's not an entitlement. Like there's an entitlement means like if you qualify, you will get it. You're entitled to it. But, you know, the Section 8 program is just, you know, how much funding can we get this year kind of thing? And we'll fund as many people as we can until we run out of money kind of thing. And so not everyone who's eligible gets it. And there might be some kind of um, like ranking according to certain characteristics. But basically where it stands now in 2020, there were approximately 2.6 million housing vouchers available, which means that there's roughly one voucher for every five eligible families. There's huge wait lists for um, this benefit, which means a lot of evictions and these disproportionately affect Black and immigrant families. So, you know, just wanted to put in 
wanted to add um, some of the stuff that's in Build Back Better. I'm not sure if those numbers are still there. I mean, everything's being negotiated up and down and all around. So who knows if it's even gonna get passed, but that's just something that was on the table. Yeah, that's super relevant. Well, Susie, I'm curious to hear what your perception is of renting versus owning when you think about this next chapter of your life, because you got a new job, which is very exciting. Um, And I know that you're thinking about where you're going to live and how you're going to live after doing this research. And after looking at the numbers, how does your perception from your own personal experience been, been informed? I don't know. I'm still a renter. I'm not, I mean, I might try to work on saving money. And by saving money, I mean, probably like put it in a brokerage account with easy access. And um, that would give me the flexibility to, you know, cash it out for a down payment if I'm ready and want to, but I'm still a renter for the foreseeable future. What about you? Oh, I mean, I feel like I've covered that. Also, you know, Hannah's married to someone who once built an entire house from scratch so speaking of like uh you know circumstances that might push you in the direction of owning versus renting one or the other like that's something that's significant you know will knows a lot about homes exactly Um, and like he knows a lot about preventative maintenance and he knows a lot about what is problematic and what isn't and when I want to do fun cosmetic things and instead we have to prioritize like shoring up our foundation, it's really painful because we literally don't see or feel the benefit of that added protection for our foundation, but he knows it's important. And so that's what we did. Um, you know, instead of the fun, cool things I wanted to do, but that's okay. (laughs) All right. Well, yeah. So this is going to bookend our little double episode on homeownership and we will move on to new topics two weeks from now. (laughs) So stay tuned and hit us Uh, up on social media at ways to means, uh, ways to means podcast on Facebook, ways to means on Instagram. Let us know what you want to hear, what you think about the episode. Yeah. We want to hear from you and we want to know what you want to learn about next. So hit us up. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Ways to Means with Hannah and Susanna. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon. 